check, check, check. Um, I always freak out that I like miss out on a, <laughs> a like vital button not getting pressed. Um, have you ever done any podcasts before, man? Yeah, I've, I've done. I I went like a big big stretch of like not doing any podcasts, and yep. then I think I've done five or six this year. Yeah, like I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I did like yep. one last year, mm-hmm. um, pretty early last year, and then I've had a big run of them this year um which is always pretty weird i don't know if you feel that way but it's like you just see yourself as a fairly i i mean by by all accounts i, I don't have superpowers or anything like i'm a normal person <laughs> but it, it's like when someone wants to hear your opinion on something you're like okay like, <laughs> yeah i know I, I noticed that all the time when i interview people like yeah. i'll ask them something and they're like oh wow what do i think about this? yeah yeah <laughs> i mean like i i know uh what I want to talk about, I guess I just find it surreal that someone... Might want to hear it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's like there's an audience of any kind that actually wants to listen to what I say. Yeah. yeah. No, that's fair enough. I, I can relate to that. Um, so today we're sitting down here with Sam. How are you going today, man? Good. How are you? Very good. Um, I'm in here. His, I'm inside of his gym, which is really cool. This is... Yeah, this is such a cool location, man. Like, um, I, I was saying it before and I'll say it again, like... Yeah, like a good view of like the city of Adelaide, mm. heaps of lighting, which is super rare for a powerlifting gym. Yeah, yeah. Most, powerlif- <laughs> most powerlifting gyms are in literally the opposite, kind yeah. of similar like with the industrial feel, but like yeah. literally in the opposite scenario. Definitely wanted to avoid the dungeon feel. I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. This doesn't give the, um, I'm walking into a place where I might get raped and hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean though? Yeah, Because like yeah. I'm from the CrossFit world and it, for ages it was the same. Like mm. you'd find like these cheap warehouses that... Other people don't want to be there for a reason. Yeah, I, I can like understand like, especially when it comes to getting places that are viable for gyms. Like it's it's not easy, right? Like you you've got your own place too. It's not necessarily easy, and you have to do a lot of changing around. Um, I think we just got really fortunate in that this came up and we were in a position to act on it, and it's it's just a really nice spot. Like it's yeah. just a really good spot. Yeah. Um. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your, your history and stuff. Um, have you always been a coach? What, what were you doing before coaching? Yeah, so I haven't actually always been a coach. Um, I've always been interested in training in some capacity. Like I love love training. Uh, I guess it, it never really became a thing for me until I was maybe 18, probably. Um, so I started training, uh, yeah, right around 18, 19 years old. And... I've always loved it, but um, I was in uni uh, studying teaching and arts. So I was doing like a double degree. And then for the longest time, I just had my mindset, like I want to be a teacher. Like I want to become a teacher. And I think looking back on it, I've always had this, um, in, like, this sort of like natural drive to help people in some capacity. And I guess I was drawn to teaching because of that. Um, I really love books, right? Like I love literature. I love books. I love reading. I love movies, I love music, like everything. And that's what you get to teach when you're an English teacher, a lot of that stuff. Um, so I did do that for a, a year and a bit. And that was contract work. But I didn't love it. Like I loved helping the kids and I loved seeing them get better. And I loved seeing them sort of change their minds about things, you know, when they initially found it challenging and then they started to lean into it and really enjoy it. That was all awesome, but schools are really highly political, like very, very political. 
like a lot of workplaces are, I, I imagine that you could go to anywhere and workplace politics exist, right? Like you, you, even if you, I don't know, go to like a fruit and veg shop, I'm sure there's like some kind of intrinsic pol political system happening there. I, I know exactly what you're saying. Like yeah. I think this happens in, in lots of industries. I know it happens like in the uh, strength and conditioning industry yeah. to some degree as well. Like uh, the bureaucracy and like... The hierarchy, Yeah, procedures yeah. and, you know, like the, the reality of... Um, I think I know exactly what you're saying. Like mm. when you happen to do something on your own terms or you've decided to pursue it like uh, free of lo a lot of those uh, procedures and bureaucracies, you can um, you can implement things that maybe are like a faster rate. Yeah. And you can see that, um, you know, sometimes when there's all these systems being put in place, mm. uh, the reality of like maybe knowledge or uh, results or whatever it is and the implementation of that are at very different ends. Yeah. Not sometimes because of the people in it not wanting the right thing done, but there's just, you know, antiquated procedures uh, or... I, I think even as well, like you go through, you you enter uni and you want to be a teacher and then you idealize that for like four years, right? Like four years and you're getting closer, you're like, finally I get to be a teacher, finally I get to change the world. And then you get hit with what's realistically like normal workplace stuff. Yeah. But it just doesn't match up to what you had told yourself teaching was going to be for yeah. four years. And that's probably like, in my opinion, why a lot of teachers maybe drop out is because you, you do go from this like really idealized version of teaching to what teaching actually is. And it's hard to uh, resolve those two ideas. So it just yep. ended up that it wasn't for, for me. Yep. Um, that's a very, you chose a very good career though to help you with the next career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's for sure. So it definitely made an easier transition. So I moved to Canada after I stopped teaching. Like okay. I worked in festivals for a while just to pick up a lot of cash. Yeah. And then um, moved to Canada, just like full sea change, like, right, I'm young. This is this this is the best possible chance I'll ever get to do this. If I don't yep. do it now, I won't ever do it. Yeah. So I sold all my stuff, moved overseas, uh, moved to Calgary, Alberta. Cool. Which was really awesome. Met some like fantastic people there. People are still, you know, friends with today. Obviously, I don't get to see them, but um, awesome people. And what, year, what year is this? This is 2014. Okay. 2014. Yep. Yeah. So I um, was working out at a gym and then finished up like I was working in bars at the time. Again, just easy money, good, you know, flexible lifestyle. Finished at the gym. Somebody tapped me on the shoulder. Okay. I've always been a reasonably tall guy, reasonably big dude. I like exercising. I wouldn't say I knew a tremendous amount. I probably thought I knew a lot, but I didn't. Tap me on the shoulder. Hey, have you ever thought about being a personal trainer? And yeah, I thought about it. And then they told me that they were doing interviews for a new club they were opening. And if I'd like an interview, I could have one. And I sat it and then they offered me a job on the spot, which was nice. <laughs> pretty crazy. That's and, cool. You know, they were just like, go get your certification, which in Canada, you can do a lot faster than Australia. Like granted, you, yep. can, you can do it in like a weekend. I've, I've heard that about the US and Canada. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you can get that. You, you can bang it out in a weekend. So... Nowhere near as much of an obstacle. And again, it's like one of those moments where you think, I've always toyed with this idea. Now I have the opportunity to do it. Let's just figure it out. Yep. So um, I, I said yes and uh, started at a, a brand new commercial gym where pretty much all of us were new. Like it was like 
16 brand new trainers. Oh, wow. And uh, fortunately, an experienced manager, but you can imagine like total <laughs> chaos, though, right? Like blind leading the blind, just yeah. about. Um, yeah, that was a pretty interesting environment to start in for sure. Like, very, I don't want to say cutthroat, but exposed me to what I consider as some pretty beneficial things in training. Like, just, um, I, I don't think it's normal to spend a, a tremendous amount of hours at the gym like I used to but at the same time I'm fairly thankful that I did get thrown into an environment like that because it makes me appreciate what I have now more yeah uh, but yeah just huge huge hours so I was saying to uh, someone yesterday like 6am to 6pm 6, 6 and then going to work in the bar oh, uh, wow. every night after that as well to sort of make ends meet yeah but yeah I've been coaching ever since so I ended up working my way up through that company like i became an assistant manager of a gym yep then a manager and then i got onto their club opening team so every time they would open up a new club we'd get sent out i'd hire and train all of the personal trainers train the managers to work with their trainers oversee the opening of the gym and that would last for about eight 12 weeks and then i'd go somewhere else in canada and do it all over again nice so i opened like seven gyms doing that's, that as well that's really cool you'd yeah. learn so much doing that yeah, I mean, it, you kind of get to look behind the veil a little bit. And, and again, you know, there's there's a lot that goes into gyms where, and again, as you'd know, there's like what it looks like to open up a gym and then there's actually opening up a gym. And there's a lot of work that goes into that stuff. Like just the the sheer amount of memberships that would have to be sold um especially for these gyms in a commercial environment and again just the the paperwork the finances like you know just just everything um uh, and again i would say pretty pretty fortunate to have experienced that and see the other side of a commercial gym setting which was really beneficial for for me for sure yeah 100 percent. so you're in canada you've been working your way up the commercial gyms uh how long do you stay in canada when do you come back to australia i came back to australia in 2018 so um my girlfriend and i she's canadian yeah um got to the end of 2017 and i just felt like i had uh you know like no more worlds to conquer you're like i i don't have anything left to prove by being here in canada anymore i've i've found something that i love doing um you know, I, I've I've done a lot. Like I've lived independently over here. I, I'm in a good relationship. I feel like it's time to go home, and uh, we did. And yeah, my my girlfriend Janine came with me, which was great as well. So back in 2018. Nice. And when you first came back here, um, had you already start uh, started building like a bit of like uh, were you coaching people online like with powerlifting and that sort of stuff, or did you no. start that when you came here? Yeah. So that was like a tricky transition, I guess. I had really been into powerlifting. I started competing in 2017. Um, competed, I want to say twice, uh, and then moved back. But it, it just seemed like powerlifting was a very different scene um, back then. And it might be because I'm more in the powerlifting community now, but it just felt very hard to break into when I initially got back. And we, we pretty much came back with nothing as well. It's not that I had no friends or family here, but nobody knew me from a bar of soap. Um, even if... Were you from Adelaide before you yeah, left? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
but just not in the fitness industry. Yeah, yet. that's right. Yeah, we, we didn't have that association, right? Like people think of me in their minds, it wasn't like Sam as coach, it was just Sam. Yeah. Um, so it was really starting with a blank slate once we got back. And from there, you just, how did, how did you get into, how did you continue coaching? Um, that, that, I've always thought about that with people when they um, are personal trainers or coaches, like so much of the following you build, like a lot of the time is, you know, probably for most people, unless they do it online, it's locally mm -hmm. and you kind of go off like people that you might know and you, that keeps growing from that point. Uh, so yeah, what was that like just coming again to a new city and just reestablishing yourself? It was, it was difficult. It was frustrating and difficult. Um, it's not that I was a big deal in Canada by any means, um, but at least people had that association with me as a coach when I was in Canada. I was fortunate that I could still continue to coach online some of my Canadian clients. Nice. So I wasn't, um, you know, devoid of clientele. Um, really will always be thankful for those guys trusting me enough to continue coaching with me <laughs> across the world. But... Yeah, it, it was it was frustrating. There was definitely a lot of trial and error. I think just the the way I saw it was like I just have to post relentlessly. I I sort of have to work relentlessly here to start to change that perception of how or, or of what people relate me to when they think of me. It's like people need to think when they hear my name they have to be thinking coach like okay. in some capacity nice so i'm gonna i'm gonna divert the conversation and we'll come back to that because i think this is something that um we've only just met each other but i think i can i'm gonna try and see how well i can read your personality so you've mentioned that you have lots of different in, you had lots of in different interests uh when you were studying in university correct mm -hmm. so things like film music etc yeah, yeah. so i know i've struggled with this a lot in the past where I'm probably really similar to you, uh, and I have the same. Like, there's so many different aspects to my life that I, l I really love really equally. Mm -hmm. like, and so much of when I post, same thing online, like, I have to always post with this mind of, like, I'm a coach and everything's coming from this perspective. But at the same time, I love music. I love, like, movies. I love dance. I love jiu-jitsu. Mm -hmm. Like, and there's all these different aspects to which, you know, encompass me as a person. So how did you work through... I guess, learning that you had to have that laser focus on this one thing? Or how did you start navigating through that? Um, I, I think for me, it was like, it's not necessarily the best thing you can do because I, I do think that at some point you, you need to um, show who you quite genuinely are so that you can build better relationships with people, right? Like you, you need to establish really, I hate the word, authentic in this context and, and but this, this is exactly yeah. where i go with this because i i do know that some of the people that i really like uh who i've you know met or followed online i've liked them because they've shown me yeah who they really are do you know yeah. what i mean like and it's one day they finally say oh like my favorite band is you know pierce the veil and i'm like oh i like that band do yeah you know what i mean it's like okay well, there's like that all of a sudden i care more about what they have to say yeah right because yeah. you get that commonality with them so i would say that i i overcorrected when I first came back and then uh, again that was probably something that I've really only become more comfortable with um, more recently is like sharing more of who I am personally like you know I love Tool right like Tool favorite yep. band big tattoo on my back with it and um, like comics and everything like that like you know love that shit but um, initially it was just all very 
brand focus. And again, like it, it was an overcorrection because I did that for too long, but I certainly don't regret doing it. Uh, I was just like, like a dog with a bone, right? Like people have to know that I'm associated with this and they need to build a, a very clear image of me in their minds. Like they need to be able to construct who I am based on the information that I give them so that they know precisely what they're going to get with my coaching. Um, and, you know, it was a really conscious effort coming back as well to make sure that we weren't recognized as, or we, I wasn't recognized as the sweat session coach. It was like education focused, make sure that, you know, you, you really are trying to, set yourself apart i guess in that regard because even like landing back here it's not a not necessarily a knock on the fitness community in australia at all i think it's just younger than the us and canada i think that they're, they're a few years ahead because they're just you know they're driving all the research they're they're doing all that stuff i i think a lot of the fitness at least in 2018 when i first landed i was like wow this is still very sweat session like come in, work your absolute guts out and then get out of here. And nobody seemed to really be sharing information, really. Like no one seemed to really be talking a lot about things like biomechanics and the inner workings of strength training or, or you know, powerlifting in a more positive fashion. And I'm not saying I was the first one to do it. I'm just saying it was harder to find. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. so... Um, that's something that I, again, really wanted us to be associated with, not only because it set us apart, but because I'm really passionate about that too. So at least I could be you know, very genuine in communicating that to people that, hey, this is the shit that I think matters. And if it matters to you, then we'd be a good fit. Yeah. So um, do you run seminars like education-based? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when did you... Were you was that like the starting point for like what you started doing or were you coaching first? Like when you came back here? Yeah, definitely coaching first. Um, I think it just got to a point where I, I I felt confident enough in sort of having collected so much information over the years that I felt like I could start synthesizing some of my own ideas and being able to back it up. Like not just come up with something crazy and be like, hey, like maybe this will work. But I felt fairly confident that I, I had something to say that could help people. And help coaches help their people so it, it, it just for me i was like i'm seeing a lot of coaches do what i considered not not silly but just like maybe misguided or a lot of misinformation out there so instead of like raging on my stories about it or you know just like getting mad i'm like just help people like if you think you have the solution then offer people the solution and yeah if they want it they'll come and if they don't want it then you know that that's on me to go back and and figure it out but if you see something wrong then fix it don't complain about it right like provide a solution and if people find value in that and then the clients that they work with also get better because of that information then you're probably onto something and that's just the the path that we followed right we were getting good results with uh the people that i was coaching and um, there's, there's like brilliance to that statement that you just said that I, I think if you know you'll get it but i think to like a lot of people they might just brush past it and i think yeah uh, like having that sort of growth um 
don't do this, my microphone's cutting up. Having that sort of growth mindset to be like, here's a problem, I want to offer a solution, rather than just um, doing what a lot of people do, which is uh, which is just complain about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think when, when I like, um, I was pretty fortunate at the start of my career to have a brutally honest coach, um, coach manager, right? Um, brutally honest. And everybody used to hang shit on him for how brutally honest he was, and he was <laughs> savage. But going into PT and going into coaching, I, I sort of had this moment where I was like, I could very honestly say to myself, I know nothing. So I was like, I'm a teacher, and I'm now trying to be a coach. Th this is the safest possible environment for me to put my hand up and just say, I don't know. I do not know and be okay with it. Like there was no expectation on me. I hadn't just come out of uni for four years studying exercise science. I was an English teacher. So I would have been hesitant to say that about English, but PT, I'm like, yeah, look, I don't know. So I would just ask him to shred me. Like yeah. tell me literally everything I'm doing badly. And he would. And I would just sit there and, and listen. And you know, you get butt hurt over that stuff. You're like, he's wrong like i'm i'm good at it but then you know a couple of minutes later you're like oh actually no i suck at that and i should probably get better and i've just tried to carry that same mindset with me for the last seven years i guess just keep putting yourself in rooms with people that are better than you and asking them how you can get better and then through that experience just try to give it to other people you know yeah. again it's like just help you know i'm really firm believer that um you know, rising the rising tide floats all ships, right? The only way we're ever going to get better is by bringing up the standard, not trying to crush people for not knowing something. It's like, if they don't know it, help them. Yeah. Right? Do the same with your clients. If they don't know it, don't make them feel silly for it. Help them, teach them, educate them. Same thing with coaches. Like, if you disagree with something that a coach is doing, offer a solution. If you can't articulate why you disagree with it, then you probably shouldn't be disagreeing with it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, what, were some, what have been some tools that you think you gained from your teaching experience that you've been able to carry over to coaching? Or have, has there been anything that you've learned? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. I think just understanding that you could love something so much and people might still think it sucks. <laughs> like okay. You, you could write the best lesson ever. You're writing a lesson plan. You're like, yes, like... This is what I'm put on the planet to do. And then you go present it to the kids and they're just like, Whatever. this is lame. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it breaks your heart. You're like, yeah. no, like I'm right. It's like, no, you're not. Yeah. Like you can be super stoked on something and it still sucks. And so you need to have the, the wherewithal to not get your back up, not get defensive and not blame other people. And instead go back and improve that and try and refine it so that you can communicate it better to people. Like if somebody doesn't get an idea or if an approach doesn't work for somebody, then it's on you as a coach and certainly on you as a teacher to go back and change it and try again. So I think that was like the the most important thing to me that came across from teaching. There's probably a few other things just like I speak in analogies and metaphors a lot just because I think people by and large learn better when you know when you when you can just relate something to them in a more 
understandable way or a simplistic way sometimes. And, you know, you miss the mark on that every now and then, but just being able to communicate broader ideas in really simple terms, I think you have to be fairly good at with teaching. So that was definitely a skill that came with it as well. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I 100% agree with the analogies. Like, I think that's a very good coaching tool, uh, especially when you're trying to explain something complex. Mm. Um, who were some of your mentors, like, when you were coming up as a coach? Or people that you looked up to like yeah. in the industry? Yeah, like uh, my first manager, Chris Fancher, um, awesome guy. I still talk to him, still really thankful for his influence on me. And there's a few guys um, in, in Good Life Fitness in Canada, like um, Eric Wonkai Pun, Brody Thorne, like those, you know, those guys were influential. Chris Fudge, awesome trainer. He was my first powerlifting coach, my first proper powerlifting coach. A um, couple of other guys like Greg Merrick, Corey Smith, really, really good trainers that just genuinely cared so much about their clients, like just just cared enough about their clients to have tough conversations with them, cared enough about their clients to not get involved with any dramatic, you know, bullshit happening inside gyms, just show up, work for your people, to be better for them. Um, certainly... Um, you know, I, I really, I, I really love people like Stu McGill, Jordan Shallows, people that are very good at what they do, but are the people that are also very quick to admit what they don't know. Like if they don't know an answer to something, they'll put their hand up and say, I don't know it, but I know who does. And you should probably go speak to them. I love that. Uh, anyone like Eric Helms is another really awesome guy for that. I, I just appreciate it so much. Mike Tushera as well. I think Mike is probably the godfather of modern powerlifting, especially if you if you use RPE, you should go thank Mike, right? Because he brought it to the forefront of, of everybody's attention. It's existed in some way, shape or form for a long time. Everybody knows that Sometimes things are more difficult and other days it's easier, but Mike put it into a scalable system that he's used to create a lot of world champions and he just gives out that information so freely that I, I just think that's incredible of him. And it's like he's the sort of... He's definitely a coach that I aspire to be. I, I very much look up to him. And then my own coach, uh, Abby Silverberg, I think is just awesome. I, I think he's he's been a, a real big influence over my programming my communication style um just you know how i approach coaching in general yeah that's cool uh what made you want to i guess specialize in powerlifting i mean i'm good at it so that's one thing you know you always want to lean into the things that you are good at um i really like the simplicity of powerlifting in that anybody can do it but i also like that in powerlifting there's essentially like this infinite cap on or there's a non-existing cap on progression you you can get better in some way shape or form um, I, I really think that the only limit on your capacity for improvement or growth in some way shape or form in powerlifting is your decision to involve yourself in it or not like if you keep showing up you will get better if you keep showing up you will get stronger um, in some you know, in some form. Like, of course, when you get older, numbers might drop relative to what you used to be doing, but you can still do some pretty incredible things. And I've seen other people just do absolutely amazing things in the strength community through that. 
And I just think strength is such a universal feeling. Like, whatever that is for people, people will quantify it in different ways, but I think we can all relate to that idea of just feeling very certain and sure of yourself and of your body. And I think when those two things are in harmony, it's just a really great place to be. And I've just found the powerlifting community to be so supportive of that idea. I, I just relate to it on a really deep level i i just love it so much anybody can do it and yeah i i just think it's infinite what people can do within the sport um something i've always like think about a lot as a coach is uh why some people improve more than others mm. right um what are your thoughts on why that happens i always sort of retort that I'm not the most naturally talented lifter, but I will never let anyone outwork me. So I will show up every single session. You tell me to do it, I'm going to get it done somehow. I'll find a way to, to manage it. And I will always make sure that I get the work in. And I feel like I've just done that for a number of years to the point where I'm better at the sport than I used to be and if I can just continue to do that if I can be better in a few years than I am today then what else could I possibly want I think that some people get better results because they have a genetic predisposition like some people straight up are made for powerlifting it's like you see someone move you're like god damn it you're you are just strong but other people aren't but they show up you know I will probably take that kind of relentless work ethic with very little genetic potential over someone that is genetically really talented or, or has a genetic predisposition to lifting but has a shit work ethic and won't do anything with it. So I think when people progress, it's like if you are genetically gifted, you still have to show up. And if you're not genetically gifted, you definitely have to show up. So I, I really just think it's to me, participation at the end of the day. Um, how do you how do you try and motivate clients when they're unmotivated themselves in the pursuit of the thing that they say they want? I think it's hard, right? Like, you have to want it, but at the same time, we as coaches have to be willing to be flexible and understanding with what people want. You know, maybe they do want it, but they've got a lot of stuff going on. You know, I think we, we always have to understand what's going on in the context of somebody's life. Whilst lifting can be everything to us, it may just be something fun and, you know, hobby-like to somebody else. I don't, I don't think that has any less merit because it's like, what's the, what's the win condition here? Like, how do we get this person winning? What, are, what do they feel like is the win? Not what, what do I feel like is the win? What's actually going to be the win condition for this person. So when somebody's not motivated, again, I, I think it's just like a, a lot of the time I will have an honest conversation with them and just ask them what's going on. Like, what, what do you think it is? What do you think the obstacles are? Like, what's happening in your life? What would you like to see happen? Maybe a few years ago, you know, at the start of my career, we're like, you got to have discipline. Like, you got to show up, blah, 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 blah. It's like, Everybody knows that discipline's better than motivation, but me saying that to someone doesn't mean shit, right? I could say some 
platitude like that to someone, it doesn't mean it has any relevance to their life, especially if they've just had a kid and maybe they're only sleeping two hours a night and work is stressing them out. It's like maybe they still want the motivation. They still want that goal, but the context around achieving that goal has changed. So the goal is still there, but we're going to have to take a different path to it. So I don't necessarily see it as me. It's not necessarily my job to motivate. It's my job to guide and find a better path to reaching that goal. Like we always, you know, stay, stay firm in the goal, but flexible in the approach. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, we're just going to take a small break here, guys, and then we're going to continue the interview with Sam. Cool. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about is um, you work with coaching coaches. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. How, yeah, does that, sure. how does that work? When did you get into that? Yeah, so um, I mean, I, I initially got into it in uh, Canada. So whenever we were opening up a new gym, I have a bunch of new trainers. So I would teach them for a week on theory and then a week on practical. So I guess like applied theoretical stuff. Um, and then from there, you know, you do that seven or eight times. Um, you get reasonably good at explaining concepts. But uh, from moving back and then just continuing to develop my own coaching, it, w it was probably just that process like I was describing earlier of seeing the same problems pop up, but they were never getting addressed. Um, what were some of those problems? So one of, one of my biggest rage outs comes from uh, this apparent obsession that everyone has with dorsiflexion. Like everyone's like, oh, here's how to get more dorsiflexion. Here's how to get more dorsiflexion. It's like, you don't need more dorsiflexion. If somebody's already in dorsiflexion, then they're not going to be able to dorsiflex more, right? You can only squeeze so much juice out of a lemon. So to, to our listeners who don't know what that is, could you explain it? So dorsiflexion, if you... Put your leg out straight, pull your toes to your nose, that's dorsiflexion. So when you're standing up and your knee starts to drive forward and you sit your hip down in a squat, that's essentially what allows for your forward knee travel during a squat. So a lot of people will kind of stretch the hell out of their ankle trying to get more and more dorsiflexion or they'll, you know, people say, okay, you need to dorsiflex more or you're not allowed to round your back. And it's just like all of these things where it's like, you're really close to an answer, but that's not quite it. Um, you know, it's when someone struggles to control their center of mass, they're going to start in dorsiflexion, right? Like if their center of mass, if their rib cage is sort of flared and they're leaning slightly forward, they're going to be in dorsiflexion to start with. So you don't need to give them more dorsiflexion. You actually need to give them some strategies to just not start there and then move into it as they drop down into their squat. And again, instead of raging out, which I did, admittedly, <laughs> I used to be really angry on the internet and I'm not anymore. But I was just like, screw it. Like, I, I'm just going to fix it. Like, uh, I'm going to put together a 12-week course on everything that I wish that I knew when I started. 
uh, everything I wish that I'd been told. And I'm just going to give people what I believe is the best information that I can give. And it's just grown pretty steadily from there. It's, you know, we, we get a lot of good feedback and I'm always trying to improve it. There's always new ideas. There's always new things that come out that sort of challenge my earlier beliefs with movement. And we try to go in, refine, add that, change things. You know, always be quite open-minded in how we're approaching the body. But I just want people to stop, like, doing things because that's the way they were told to do them. And I want people to start thinking about how the body actually moves. So it's like, don't just... Squat, don't just like push your knees out in a squat because you've been told that that's what you should do. It should make sense in a real dynamic model. Like if you can tell me why you should push your knees out or why you should do X, Y, and Z, then I have no issue with it. But the problem is people can't tell you that. And so that's what I take issue with. It's I, I really think there's no like, there's no bad exercise selection. There's just bad logic. Right? There's no bad programming, there's just bad logic. And so the entire mentorship that I put together is like give people the rules, give people the foundation, the the like first principles of how things work and then you guys can just start to develop your own ideas from it. Have freedom with how you approach clients. Don't do things because you're afraid that it's the wrong thing. If it works, it works as long as it makes sense. And, you know, that's that's the big thing that I wanted to address in developing that. Yeah. And then um, I guess uh, when you first started doing Ethos Strength um, here in Adelaide, did you do it like out of a gym or did you do it all face-to-face -face or online? Yeah, so we, we started doing like online or I started doing online. We're now we, but <laughs> previously I was I. Um, online straight away. I just felt like it was the greatest point of leverage for the business at the time. Um, I, I still wanted to do one-on-ones face-to-face and I still did like a lot of face-to-face -face work. But long-term, I knew that online w was where we ultimately had to be. Uh, so we did push that a lot and it was good because when COVID hit, we didn't really have to pivot our business model we were already doing it so all we did was just continue to look after the people that we already had um with how yeah, with i have a question about that yeah, um how did you how have you navigated um in the world like the fitness world online post covid because i feel like before covid uh you probably had significantly less competition online yeah i mean there's i don't know i i just i don't really see it as I mean, I mean this with as little arrogance as possible, but I just don't really see it as competition because we know what we're about. And yeah. It's like, we're, we're good at what we do. Well, um, even, maybe yeah. even the other way, has you see, have you seen... Because uh, this, for example, I'll show my story. Like, uh, we had two gyms and we closed it. And I think for quite a long time, like, I dabbled with doing some online coaching, but it wasn't something that I'd, like, fully gone into. Have two gyms, a lot of regular members that I probably need to look after. But then when COVID happened, like I had a lot of ex-members who don't live in Adelaide anymore, who now saw that online coaching was a thing that started reaching out to me. And they're like, hey, like I'm in the UK or I'm in, you know, middle Australia or in Queensland. Could you coach me? And then I realized, oh, wow, like 
now, and for myself, I've experienced that more people now are open to online coaching yeah. than maybe in the past. Have you experienced that? Yeah, I think people just got more comfortable with the idea. Yeah. Like I, I think before, it was probably like pre-COVID. I don't think it's necessarily that we've all, all of a sudden had this explosion of competition online. I think people are, are now just more accepting of it as a legitimate mode of coaching and yeah. that you can achieve good results. You can be highly professional. You can, it can be like completely individualized depending on who you go with. And so people just got more comfortable with that idea and maybe people that had apprehensions about doing it and seeing it as a lesser service before no longer did and are now leaning into it more. I, I do think it's more acceptable with that said, you know, you always get some muddying of, of the waters, right? Like you can't just go online and expect that people will flock to you just because you happen to be online. It's like, no, there's like, at this point, probably billions of, of trainers out there that are, yeah. that are trying to do something similar. So you still need to treat it like a business. You still need to give a really high level of service. Um, how, yeah. how are you able to do, like, I'm always interested in, uh, talking to other people who do mm -hmm. who do have online businesses, uh, how are you able to, I guess, create like a community or engage with your customers like in an online sort of setting? Re like we're always really big on team. Um, I want everybody to interact with each other as much as possible. So we have a private group on Facebook where you know I want everybody to interact. Like I said, I, I want people to share stories with each other or, or, or kind of like celebrate wins with each other so what we you know we post progress a lot in there we we get people to celebrate like the competition that we had on sunday obviously that's an in-person event but in the team page we we're posting all the updates like everybody winning and you know the people that weren't at the competition are, are chiming in i think that people what what's like so important about or to me anyway what's so important about why I've stuck with powerlifting for so long is because it created a sense of belonging and community for me. And that's all we're really trying to replicate is like this, this is where you belong, right? Like this is something that you share in common with these people. And that's something great that the internet can actually do is bring people together over really broad distances. It gives a greater platform for people to just simply communicate with each other. So I think a lot of people see it uh, like see the internet as being isolating sometimes and, and disconnection, but I think it can be the opposite too. And when you really push team and community and get people to support each other and, and we're pretty explicit about like, if you come on board, you're a part of the team, like you're going to join in and you're going to help out and you're going to support. And if you're not cool with that, that's okay. But this is what we do and we expect you to join in. Um, and I think just being explicit about that too really helps. Like just, this is the expectation. This is what it is. Yeah, I think, I think it's really important. I think, um, when, I think when coaches or trainers are shy about maybe really saying to their clients what they're about, sometimes it can be like some cognitive dissonance between what the person expects or is experiencing versus yeah. what you want to give. Yeah. I think like you can't ever, you, you can't ever punish somebody for something that they didn't know. So uh, again, if you, if you lay out your expectations for behavior uh, or conduct, 
if that isn't adhered to, at least you know at that point it's a conscious decision on the other person's behalf. But, you know, if you're not asking for it, you'll never get it. Yeah. So if you want community engagement, just tell people. You know, if you expect a certain standard of behavior from people, just tell people and give them the tools to make up their own minds about that. You know, you, you want people that are independent and want to be there. And when you're more explicit about those values, you know who wants to be there because they're just simply the people that are sticking around for it. And yeah. it's an easy conversation. Yeah, yeah, 100%. How did you, how did you come go the other week? Good. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was busy. They get a little bit better every time we run them. So I'd say it was the smoothest one we've ever run. Um, all of our volunteers are internal now, which is awesome. So like all of our lifters from the team, like our clients and, and athletes, all do the volunteer positions, which is great. Um, you know, tech desk, scorekeeping, spotting. So yeah, we had a few people from interstate for the first or well, second time, but the most people from interstate we've ever had, which was great. Oh, nice. That's yeah, cool. so we had um, three lifters from New South Wales take part, which which is awesome. You know, you, you love seeing the, maybe not necessarily the sport grow because they're established lifters, but just seeing the community grow, especially in SA. It's like opening it up to more and more people. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really fun. Like I, I they're, they're bloody exhausting, right? But I, I, as soon as the competition finished, I had a beer and slept for like four hours. And that was like <laughs> two in the afternoon. But yeah. um, they're, they're energizing at the same time. Like, it's such a fun environment and I, I love it. Like, I, I still love running them. You're glad that they're over, but you definitely don't regret holding them. Yeah, 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 I can relate to yeah. that. Uh, going back to powerlifting, uh, like, what do you think is the hardest lift to progress people with? The squat, the bench, or the deadlift? Um, I think the one that people have the most difficulty with is the bench press, to me. Okay. And I think that's, a couple of different reasons, and I'm not saying that it's like the best lift, although it's it's my best lift. Like I love bench press, I eat it up, but I think that's the one that people have the most difficulty with because people tend to think that it's very simple, uh, and it's not. I think it actually has more technical demand than a squat or a deadlift because you don't have as many sort of mechanisms for compensation. So, in a squat and deadlift, you've got you know, you, you, you've got a lot of muscle, a lot of torso under that bar. Same thing with the deadlift. It's like you can really grip and rip that bar. Like maybe you feel absolutely knackered, but you can still hit a PR and a pretty ugly deadlift sometimes, which we've all done. But the bench, if you're not on, like if you are not switched on and just like technically really tight and really sound, it will punish you it will punish you every time. And so teaching people how to create counterforce through their feet, like where to put their feet, what's the right grip width for your, for your torso, your arm length, um, your breathing mechanics, you know, are you, are you breathing in the right way? Um, are you high enough on your traps? Like there's so many different things and it's really just you, your arms and your shoulders and you have to lock the rest of your body in a very specific way and move as much weight as you possibly can I, I just think people underestimate how much effort goes into a really technically proficient bench press. Uh, okay, let's let's dive deeper into the... I think this is probably something super relatable, like uh, a lot of guys listen to the podcast, and it's probably something that every guy's probably at one stage tried to like improve their bench. Yep. So uh, 
for yourself, like, what was the plateau that you hit in your bench and how were you able to get through that? Um, I, I guess, like, the biggest um, milestone for me was going 200 plus. Like, I went 205 in November of last year nice. uh, at competition. Then I did 200 in March of this year. And... That's officially like stronger than zero point zero 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 one percent of the population. Yeah, it was it was fun, but that that was a big milestone. I think there's a couple of things that go into that, but um, like technical proficiency for sure. Like you you need to understand the the like the actual demands of the movement. Like some of the biggest maybe errors or misunderstandings that I see, uh, you know, people like really trying to crank their elbows in and, and like you, you end up sort of in a really poor position underneath the bar, not understanding the way your shoulders need to rotate under the bar, setting up really poorly, not using enough leg drive. There's a lot of stuff like that. But I think also people tend to have a lot of hesitation in building their foundation. You know, it's like, especially with bench, the the pyramid can only be as tall as the base is wide. So you need to spend a lot of time doing sub-max work and just build up your capacity over time. You can't always just be trying to max out. And I think the bench really takes a lot of um, patience and you're really grinding for just kilos sometimes. And a lot of the time people just don't, bench frequently enough as well so we need to understand like when you're benching even, even when you're using say like a, a maximal load like a heavy bench is still lighter than your heavy squat or your heavy deadlift for the most part unless you're a full-on freak it's still going to be lighter right so your capacity for recovery from those weights in an absolute term the weight you're using for benches is, is lighter yes it's going through like fewer joints so it's going to have a greater impact on those joints but from like a collective sort of per, um, sense it doesn't take as much to recover from that so if you're not actually building bench with a reasonable amount of frequency maybe three to four times in a week i'm not saying everybody has to do that but you'd be surprised at how much frequency you can tolerate in your bench when you program it well you detrain really quickly right so it's essentially like just imagine that you hit bench once a week and then by the time you go to hit it again, you don't really have that level of fatigue left in your body to create compensation or, or sorry, adaptation, to create adaptation because adaptation only comes from challenge. You apply a consistent sort of mid-level challenge to something, your body starts to adapt, create tissue, uh, create better neural pathways so that you can move better and, and you know, adapt to it. So bench is one of those things that will detrain very quickly if you're not doing it with enough frequency. And then, of course, if you're going to be doing it at a higher frequency, you need to be conscious of how heavy it's going to be. You need to really sort of um, periodize your intensities very well. And then you have to be looking at not only your weak points, but, you know, your execution too. Like what are your weaknesses in movement? and what's what's inhibiting you from from doing that again like only benching won't necessarily make you better at benching if you're ignoring everything else too what was your specific like accessory exercise that helped you for probably just horrible tempos and a lot of block pressing um, okay, yep. my eccentric strength was quite poor 
Um, and I didn't have a very big capacity. Like I, my, my top end, I can push a lot of weight, but it's sort of bringing up that middle ground that's always been very hard for me, like reps of four, five, six, and doing a lot of work in those rep ranges, I, I actually find very difficult and very fatiguing. Um, I couldn't honestly tell you why. It's just hard for me. No, no, I mean, uh, I, I've, I've noticed over the years, like, I think different people just have different capacities and different yeah, rep ranges. Like, course. I'm having, like, a background with CrossFit where I've seen people excel, like, in really high rep ranges mm. and have, like, incredible capacity at, you know, 70 to 90% of their you know, they're one rep maxes, but then die within anything higher than that. Yeah. Or vice versa. Like, um, you yeah, know, I would be the opposite of that. Yeah. I could seen, hit yeah. singles, doubles, triples, easy. And then you start taking me into higher rep ranges and like, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. Like some people yeah. just, they just have more of that sort of muscle fiber. Yeah, or that's right. Versus the other one. So yeah, a lot, a lot of just eccentric strength, but even just like uh, taking care of the 1% behaviors right like you'd be surprised at how much that just stacks up it's like are your hands tight enough are you pushing into the right part of your foot are you unracking it well like are you unracking the bar efficiently are you in the right position are you holding your breath um you know in the right position is it in your belly is it in your chest small stuff like that really adds up and if you can start to address that stuff it, a lot of the other things fall into place very rapidly. I think there's so much to, to that, what you said. Like, um, I know that when I did a little bit of powerlifting, that was probably my biggest takeaway from it, just, like, respecting, like, squatting, like, as, you know, put all of your effort into it, like, making that movement be as perfect as you could. Same with deadlifting, same yep. with uh, your benching. Uh, whereas, like, um, you know, probably a lot of my listeners might have a CrossFit background. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the times in that sort of... Uh, sporting community like maybe with the olympic lifts people will give like a lot of uh important to the details but for the power lifts they just often don't and they yeah. just they don't you, you might not realize how much that little bit of tightness every time in your squat does mm. make a difference or that yeah. little bit of tightness and because then you keep that behavior gets better and better and better over time yeah yeah it's all got compound interest right like yeah. snatch clean and jerk there's a, again from like the surface area surface level people will see those and be like oh you just have to be really strong all you do is throw the weight up it's like no <laughs> like yeah probably have to be fast more than you know super strong like the people that are explosively fast and just have like when, when you see a really nice um barbell snatch or clean and jerk like when someone has that perfect timing and it just looks fluid and and awesome and you see that in squatting, benching, and deadlifting too. Like, I don't know if anybody's ever seen like a, a really technically flawless bench, but it is just awesome to behold when no, someone I'm, just I know, like... I know what you mean. Yeah. Like, you notice the bar, it's just like straighter than it does. It is for other people. Yeah. Like, and it's the same thing when somebody squats well or deadlifts. Like, it's like they're doing the same thing you're doing, but somehow... So much better. You can see yeah. that this, it's like, it's like the invisible, but it's visible. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. And I think that's probably your, your biggest role as a coach, right? Just make the invisible visible and, and work on that 1% stuff. Like before you start, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty big on it. I'm sure a lot of other people are before you start thinking like, okay, um, we gotta got to give them this drill and then we've got to give them this variation and then we have to do this with the rep ranges and then this with the intensity. Like all that stuff's important, it is. But are they 
squeezing the bar with their hands? You know, uh, are they stiffening up their feet? Can they brace? Do they know how to breathe properly? And if you can take those things, like all the sort of like extraneous stuff, like get them using their hands properly, get them using their feet properly, teach them how to rotate their hip and how to actually breathe into their diaphragm. And the rest of your coaching gets real, real easy after that. I think that's a really good place to leave it at, man. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, man. If people wanted to find you, where can they do so? Uh, so the Etho Strength Gym is 27 Port Road. So we're right by Maniacs. Uh, so we've just opened a couple of weeks ago. And if you are inclined to be on Instagram, we're um, at Ethos Strength. So E-T-H-O-S Strength on Instagram. Uh, and ethostrength.com.au uh, is our website as well. That's cool. Make sure to go check that stuff out, guys. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today, Sam, and I'll definitely get you back on the podcast in the future. Yeah, thank you. Cheers.